Good morning, Keystone. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue this series. We started on 1 John uh, a couple weeks ago. Every year around Mother's Day, right about this time, we start to get a visitor at our house. Uh, without fail, at about the same time each year, she shows up. And she shows up without notice, but quickly moves in and makes herself at home. Uh, she's there sometimes in the morning when we wake up, and sometimes she's there in the evenings when we get home from work. Uh, sometimes she remains hidden, and sometimes she comes out into the open. And then eventually she just disappears to show back up the next year at the exact same time. Who, who am I talking about? Uh, the groundhog that makes her summer vacation home underneath our shed in the dirt. And it's interesting for me to see that the response of that groundhog to seeing me is the exact opposite of the response of our dog to seeing me. That as soon as I get home and that groundhog out in the yard sees that I'm there, she immediately runs for cover and hides which is the exact opposite of what our dog does when she sees me. She runs toward me, seeks me, greets me with joy, and is excited. One thing can cause a different, different response in two different animals. The appearance of me can cause one to run and hide and the other to run and seek. And I think, isn't that a similar thing for us to when we see sin in our lives. That when we're confronted or convicted of our sin, day after day, week after week, that we're either prone to run and hide or to run and seek God. And the question I really want to have us ask this morning as we look at these five verses in 1 John is this. Does our sin cause us to run away from God and other people within the church and hide? Or does our sin cause us to run toward God and other people in the church in confession, seeking mercy and grace and the help that we need? Because what we do in response to our sin matters for our joy. We've seen over the first two weeks in the series, hopefully, that part of what matters for our joy is knowing God, that, that the essential ingredient for our joy is knowing God in Christ, drawing near to him, and that no matter what our circumstances may be, the more we know him, the, the deeper our joy can go. But we're confronted with a problem this morning, that the closer we walk with God, the more we know him, the more our sin gets exposed. And so what we do in response to that matters for our joy as well. Like I said, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read those verses together, and I'll explain how we're going to try to uh, walk through this passage together this morning. 
Father, when we come to you through faith in Christ, we believe that we are coming to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we know that you comfort us in our affliction. And we know that your mercies are never sweeter than when we're confronted with our own sin. And so I pray this morning as we look at what John said, at what you've spoken through John, at what you continue to use to speak to us today in his words, that that's exactly what you'd do. You'd remind us of sin in our lives, but more importantly, remind us of how to respond and of what an opportunity it is to see your mercy when we're confronted with our sin. Guide us and speak to us this morning, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Here's how... We're going to approach this passage this morning, just so you know where we're going. We're going to look at the premise God, or John gives us in verse 5, first of all. Th- then we're going to look at the warnings John lays out in verse 6, 8, and 10. And then finally look at the promises he lays out for us in verses 7 and 9. So that's just where we're headed as we work through this passage this morning. Starting first with the premise that drawing near to God will expose our hearts. That the closer we walk with him, the more we know him, the more our hearts will get exposed. John starts out this passage and tells us God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To which we should immediately ask, what does that mean? What does that mean? John, why, why can't you just tell us what you mean? Speak clearly. Because we we see that John loves to use metaphors and imagery, not only in the book of Revelation, which it's probably most famous for, but also in his gospel that he's written and in these letters that he writes to us. And he often uses the imagery of light and darkness for good and evil. And so what, what does John mean when he says, God is light? And in him there is no darkness at all. John's pointing to the absolute moral perfection, purity, holiness of God. Or another way to put that would be to say, God is 
absolute goodness. There, there are no imperfections, no flaws, no impurities in him. That all he is and does is good. Which means to know him and draw close to him will expose what isn't good in us. Light exposes darkness. Good exposes evil. God's holiness shines a spotlight on our sinfulness. And the closer we get to him, the more we know him, the more that sin gets exposed. Because the closer you get to the light, the more it exposes something. I found this out as a 19-year-old when I was in a gap year program my year after I graduated high school. We went to Panama for two months as part of that gap year program. It was called the outreach phase for us. And during that outreach phase, one day each week, we would do something that wasn't ministry-related. So we'd travel, or we'd tour someplace, or we'd just kind of spend the day relaxing. And one of the first weeks we were there, that day off, we went to the beach in Panama. And our leaders warned us the night beforehand, hey, we are in Panama, we are near the equator, which means we are kind of more directly in the sunlight, wear lotion, wear lotion. And the next day, as we went to the beach, same thing, wear lotion. The sunlight is more direct here, wear lotion. So being a 19-year-old guy who naturally has pale skin, I responded by putting on four SPF tanning oil. (laughs) And I laid out on the beach for four hours. And it was the worst I've ever been burnt in my life. Because being in direct sunlight will expose pale skin very badly. And being in the presence of a holy God and knowing him and drawing closer to him will only serve to expose our sinfulness more clearly. The closer we draw to God, the more we know him, the more we walk with him, the more aware we will become of our sin. I I think we, we tend to emphasize that the longer that we are followers of Christ, the less we sin. And there's truth to that because we're called to grow in likeness of Christ and God's spirit helps us to grow in likeness of Christ, conforms us to his image. But there's just as much truth to saying the longer we are followers of Christ, the more mature we grow as Christians, the more aware we become of our sin and the more grieved we become by the sight of it. And so if you're here this morning and this past week, you've seen again just how sinful you can be, don't let that ultimately discourage you because it might actually be a sign of walking closely with God as he exposes the remaining sin in us. The the question is not whether sin will get exposed in us or not. It will. But the question is, what do we do in response 
when we see our sin, when we become aware of it. And to answer that question, we need to look first at the warnings John gives us in this passage. The the warnings are that responding to sin in the wrong way will choke out joy. We're looking at these three verses together, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Because they have a common theme of dealing incorrectly with our sin. And so having us live an active lie. And any time that we live a lie, it only leads to despair and destruction. Not life and joy. And so John gives us these warnings of how we can deal with our sin incorrectly and live a lie. Helping us to see, don't do this in some ways. And so here's the first warning he would give us for how we deal with sin wrongly. That hiding sin away will choke out joy. In in verse 6, John speaks of someone who claims to have fellowship with God and yet walks in the darkness. And that can be referring to someone who would claim to be a follower of Christ and yet is living in open, active sin and would say, this isn't sin. That's a dangerous sign that would tell us maybe our confession of faith isn't real because of our life. But there's also this other side, I would say, to claiming to have fellowship with God, but walking in the darkness. And that can be when we know that something is sinful in our lives, but we try to keep it tucked away, hidden out of sight. Maybe hidden out of sight from God, we think, but but more often hidden out of sight from other people that we don't want anyone else to know. And so we just cover over sin and keep it tucked away in the darkness. And we should stop and ask, why would we do that? Why would we live a lie and say everything is fine when it isn't? Why would we say all the right things while, meanwhile, there's some dark, hidden corner of our lives that no one knows about? Why would we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness and cover over our sinfulness? I think the answer to that question is either fear or comfort. Either fear or comfort keeps us hiding in the darkness, covering over sin that we may not want anyone else to know about. First, we we hide sin because we're afraid of how bringing it out into the open might make us look. That, That if I were to confess to you on a Sunday morning just how easy it is for me to approach this time with an eye towards how is the sermon going to make me look, you might think, that's pretty messed up. That if together in the hallways after church we, we started to confess just how impatient and angry we can get in our homes at times, that we might be terrified of, well, how's that other person going to look at me if they knew that about me? That, that whatever pocket of our lives that we might try to keep hidden away, that we're afraid, if I, if I bring this out into the open, people are just going to run from me. See, there is a lie that Satan loves to tell us 
over and over and over again to keep us in the darkness. And I would guess a lot of you are familiar with it in some way. It goes a little like this. If people really knew you, they really knew about that area of your life, they would reject you and run from you. And so we just cover up our sin rather than bring it out into the open. Or we stay in the darkness out of comfort. That deep down, the reason we don't bring sin out into the open maybe is because secretly we like it. Because secretly it feels good. And because we know if we bring it out in the open, we might actually have to change. We might actually have to fight back. We might actually have other people who care for us and check in on us. And that just feels too painful. And so we cover it up and keep it hidden away. Bringing sin out into the light of the day is always risky and likely will involve pain. But the opposite, to cover it up, to hide it away, is deadly. I mean, imagine for a second, this is a picture for it, imagine for a second that you had a rattlesnake in your bedroom and you knew it was there. Like you saw it before it slithered away into your closet and hid behind your shoes and clothes in the darkness. One option in responding would be to say, I'm just going to ignore it and let it go, and maybe it will disappear. Because trying to get help, trying to find it, trying to get it out of here is just going to be too difficult or too risky, and so I'm just going to let it hide away in the darkness and hope that it disappears. And we know no one would do that. No one would do that because that rattlesnake can do far more damage in the dark than it can in bring out in the open. That it's far more likely you're going to get bit if it just remains in there in the dark. Sin does far more damage when we hide it away in the dark than when we bring it out into the light. It may feel easier to hide it away, but it does far more damage. Sin, it, sin is nocturnal. It grows and thrives in the darkness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great book, Life Together, just a short book on community in the church, says this. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, sin, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. He's only repeating in some ways what David says in Psalm 32, where David says these words about his sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Hiding sin away chokes out joy, as does denying sin away, which I think is what John warns us against in verses 8 and 10. 
we, we may be tempted to read a 1 John 1.8 or 1 John 1.10 where it says, if we say we have no sin or if we say we have not sinned and immediately think if you are a follower of Christ, well, I know I'm a sinner, so that doesn't apply to me. That must only apply to people who haven't repented, trusted in Christ, and haven't admitted that they're sinners. But we have to remember, John's writing to Christians. And then we have to stop and slow down and ask, are there ways that I deny sin in my life? That I effectively say, I have no sin, when really I do. And I would say, I think there are two ways that we tend to do that. We just suggest and point out two ways. We tend to in some way say, I have no sin, or at least not that much. The first is that we maximize our own righteousness. That we're overly critical of other people, judgmental, looking down on others and saying, I, I would never say that. I would never do that so that we don't actually have to see our own sinfulness. Or we prop up our own righteousness with our good performance. And so we spend so much time looking on the sin in other people's lives and looking on our perceived goodness in our own lives that we end up saying, I have no sin. Or not as much as other people. Or the flip side of this is that we minimalize our own sinfulness. We're really, really good at minimalizing sin by explaining it away. Like, have, have you ever noticed how much easier it is to say I messed up than I sinned? Ha- have you noticed how easy it is to explain away impatience and anger with just I'm tired and overworked? Have you noticed how easy it is to to justify some sinful pleasure with, I just need an outlet for my stress? We are experts at finding ways to name something that is sin, not sin, because we don't want to admit deep down that it really is. Amy DiMarcangelo says this, if we want true freedom, freedom that cleanses us from unrighteousness, We must honestly name our unrighteousness. When we're being lazy in our parenting, we can't call it tiredness. When we're being harsh, we can't call it discipline. When we're being selfish, we cannot call it self-care. We can't explain away our sin as something else because all we'll do in the process is keep ourselves from actually finding freedom from that sin. Like if... If I break my leg and then say, it's only just a cramp, it doesn't change the fact that my leg is broken. It just keeps me from finding the healing and help I need in seeing a doctor. And if we explain away sin, it doesn't mean that we don't have sin. It just keeps us from running to Christ to find the grace and mercy that actually heals us and gives us freedom. Denying sin away and hiding sin away will only keep us from joy and freedom and hope that we actually need when we see our sin. And, and think about this too, that 
these two options, hiding sin away or denying sin away, has been humanity's tendency with sin for all of history. What happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned? First, they played the worst game of hide-and-seek ever, ran to the bushes, threw some fig leaves on, and said, God won't find us. (laughs) And notice God comes pursuing them. And when he finds them, then what happens? I didn't do it. She did it. I'm not a sinner. She is. I'm not a sinner. The snake is. I'm, right? Like all throughout history, these are our two dangers. I'm going to hide my sin away or I'm going to deny it away rather than bring it out into the light and finding hope and healing that I actually need. And unless sin gets out into the open, we don't find joy and we don't find healing. As Proverbs 28, 13 puts it, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Here's here's why I want to stop for a moment and, and just say, when it comes to our sin, we should take God's warnings seriously. Because our tendency, I think, when we read warnings in Scripture is to just run right past them. And we should view them and said like stop signs. Stop. Sit. Think. That we should stop and think, are there ways that I am hiding my sin away, trying to keep things out of sight because I'm afraid of bringing it out in the open or it's just comfortable? That we should stop and think, is there sin in my life that I'm denying because I just keep calling it something else, rationalizing it away? God's warnings in Scripture are always meant for our good. And so when it comes to our sin, let's not rush over them and say that applies to other people but doesn't apply to me. Thank goodness that God provides us with another option, an option that brings joy, that when confronted with our sin, there is an option for us that leads to greater joy. The flip side of Proverbs 28, 13 is this. But he who confesses and forsakes them, his iniquities, his sins, will obtain mercy. And the flip side of Psalm 32, 3 through 4, which we read earlier, is this. Blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And the flip side of 1 John 1, 6, 8, and 10 is this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that the promises are responding to sin well will actually deepen our delight. Responding to sin well will actually deepen our delight. John starts verse 7 by saying, if we walk in the light, and so immediately we say, okay, what is walking in the light? Well, part of it is walking in obedience to God's commands and becoming more and more like Christ. But that can't be the only thing that walking in the light means, because notice this verse ends by saying, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
Obedience doesn't require Jesus' blood to cleanse us from sin. Sin does. And so walking in the light must also mean bringing our sin out in the open, confessing it, calling it what it is, and therefore finding mercy and grace and help that we need. So, so walking in the light not only involves obedience, but it involves confessing our disobedience, our sin. And not just with God, but also with one another. Why, why is that? Well, let's look back at verse 7 again. Because notice in verse 7, John says, If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Which is a surprising thing for him to say there. Track back to the beginning of this passage, verse 5. Where John says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with him? With one another. With one another. Why? Because confession of sin also involves acknowledging our sin to one another. Just as James would tell us in James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another. And I I think we immediately ask, why should I confess my sins to other people? Why does that matter? Why can't I just confess my sin to God? Why do I have to confess to other people as well? Why should I? And I think one of the answers to that, there's probably more than one, but one of the answers to that is that confession will deepen our delight in one another or in the relationships we have with one another, in being a community as a church. First, because it strengthens our bond with each other. Confession is like calcium for our relationships. What does calcium do? It makes bones grow stronger. Show me someone who has strong bones, and I'll bet they're someone who has enough calcium in them. Show me a church that really knows and loves each other, that looks forward to gathering together, whether on a Sunday morning or in small groups or any other time, that runs toward each other in difficulty rather than away from each other, and I'll bet that's a church that knows how to confess sin well. Like, we, we, if we want to grow in our fellowship with one another, confession of sin, along with confession of our doubts, our struggles, our weaknesses, our suffering, is a great way for us to grow closer together and fight for one another side by side. And, and then the other thing on this, kind of along with it, is that confessing our sin to one another signals that it's actually really is okay to not be okay here. That it actually really is okay to not be okay in the church. A church where we must appear put together and as if we have our life in order constantly will be exhausting. A church where we feel the pressure to perform for two hours when we get together and keep our guard up will only serve to drain life. But a church that is honest and open, admitting sin, admitting weakness, admitting difficulty, suffering, will grow closer to one another and will signal to everyone else, it's okay to not be okay here. 
There's a way for us to do church that instinctively communicates to one another, we need to, put our, we need to have our act together and have the right face on. That, like, there's a way for us to gather that instinctively communicates, saying everyone has their life put together and we need to as well. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the pious fellowship. And here just a little bit more what he says about it. He says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. What did he just say? That we can gather together each week. That we can actually serve alongside each other, sing together, and still be sitting and utterly alone. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though we have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. And so what does he say the breakthrough to community is? In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Like, I I just want to pause here and ask two questions for us. The first is this. Are there people who really know you in the church? Are there people who really know you? Like people who you believe you could confess your sin to. People who you believe wouldn't be shocked by anything you might say to them. People who not only know the best about you, but also the worst about you. Do you have those people within the church And I want to challenge us and say, if we don't, we need those people. We need those people. We need to seek them out, whether in finding a mentor, whether in pursuing it in a small group, whether uh, some other avenue that we might find. We need people who really know us, really know us. And then here's the second question. Are we willing to take the first step? Like, it's, it's always going to feel like a risk to be transparent and vulnerable and honest about our sin and struggles. But unless someone takes the first step, no one will. Are, are we willing on a Sunday morning to come up for prayer because we know we really do need prayer, despite knowing, well, this might make me look weak? Are, are we willing to pull someone aside after church, say, hey, I just want to talk a little bit about what's happening? To ask someone to go to breakfast and lay out, here's what's happening in my life. Can you pray for me? Are we willing to take the first step and appear weak and vulnerable and take the risk? And I would say the way we become more willing to do that is in knowing and being confident of God's love and forgiveness of us. Because here's the second part of responding to sin well will deepen our delight. That confessing our sin deepens our delight in God. 1 John 1, 9 is an incredible promise. Like, we should memorize it. We should put it in our back pockets. We, we should have it on us at all times that we can pull it out when we need to. Let, let's look back at this verse again and read it kind of slowly. First it says, if we confess our sins... So it's saying, if we bring our sins out into the open and confess them before God, then there will be a result. And here's the result. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
we would expect that, I think, to say he is faithful and merciful. Did you catch? God is faithful and actually just to forgive you and me our sins when we confess them. Why is he just to forgive sins? Because Jesus paid it all. All. And so for us to confess our sins, it would actually be unjust for God not to forgive us. It would be him saying the death of Christ is insufficient. It's not enough. And he will never, ever do that. This is an incredible promise. But, but we might ask then, okay, if Jesus paid it all, and if when I repent and initially become a Christian and trust in him, all my sins are forgiven and I'm made righteous, well then, why should I keep confessing my sins? Why day after day or week after week should I keep confessing my sins to God? And I believe that question is rooted in the wrong view of confession. That it views confession like a burden rather than something to rejoice in. Here's how we might think about it. When you or I graduate high school or college, I would guess most of us said, why would I ever write another research paper again? Why would I ever take another test again? I've got my diploma now. I'm out of here. I'm never going to do those things again. Because we instinctively view those things like a burden. But I would guess we didn't graduate high school or college and think, why would I ever see these friends that I've made here again? Why would I ever want to talk to them again? I've got my diploma. I'm done. I'm moving on. Why? Because we instinctively believe getting together with close friends is a cause for joy and happiness. Do we view confession as if it's a burden to bear, like homework? Or do we view it as if it's getting back together with a close friend and rejoicing in the grace and forgiveness that God offers to us? Confession is meant to bring joy, not weigh us down with a burden. And so why confess our sins to God over and over and over again? Let me give three quick reasons and then we'll wrap up. First, that confession reminds us God's love is not based on our performance. We are in some ways hardwired to fall back into believing God loves me because of something in me. Because I'm a good mother or father or friend or parent or Christian or Sunday school teacher or whatever it might be. And confession reboots our hard drive and says, no, God loves us because he loves us because he chose us in Christ, because he's promised to save us, and because he's done it all in Christ. He doesn't love us because of anything in us, but because of all that Christ has done for us. Confession reminds us of that. Confession also reminds us that all our guilt is dealt with. It's really easy for us sometimes, I think, to believe, yes, God forgives me of my sin, but I have to clean myself up now. So I've got to do some form of Christian penance that says, I'll do better next time. I'll be better tomorrow, thinking that I've got to clean myself up. But what does John say? God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We neither pay for our sin nor clean ourselves up. And confession reminds us of both of those truths. 
And then thirdly, and this is kind of just a summary of those first two, and I would say the most important reason why we should confess our sins. Because confession reminds us the gospel really is good news. If I'm not a sinner, the gospel loses its goodness. It might have been good news back when I was a sinner and I came to Christ. But now that I have my act together, it's just average news. Like a a life vest is not good news if I know how to swim. A life vest is really good news if it's the only thing that's keeping me from drowning in the water. The gospel isn't good news if we believe we've managed to stop sinning and get our act together and can do it on our own. But if we recognize and see and feel the weight of our sin, deep down, knowing I'm a sinner day after day after day, that if I feel like sin threatens to drown me or condemn me or separate me from God, then the gospel is the best news in the world. Because it says, nothing can condemn me in Christ. Nothing can separate me from God's love in Christ. Nothing can drown me in Christ. He is enough. And the more we confess our sin to God, and remember how secure we are in his love and forgiveness, the more willing we'll be to confess our sin to each other and risk losing faith. faith. Because gospel doctrine what we believe about God's forgiveness and grace leads to gospel culture, a willingness to appear vulnerable and weak and as sinners with one another. Confession is an instrument of joy. That's the the big idea we're closing with. That the more we see the ugliness of our sin, the more opportunity we have to see the beauty of God's grace in Jesus the more we see our sins piling up in a heap, the more opportunity we'll have to marvel at the mountain of God's mercy in Jesus. And the more we see how dirty and unclean we are because of our sin, the more opportunity we'll have to swim in the ocean of God's love, knowing that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. Confession was never meant to be a burden for us to bear. It's meant to lead to joy as we admit our sin before God and others and find grace and mercy and the help that we need. Father, we pray these words. We pray these words, rejoicing in the fact that we have mercy in you, grace in you, everything we need in Christ. We pray, search us and know us, O God. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the path of everlasting life, everlasting joy. God, help us to be the quickest people to confess our sin when we see it, so that as a result, we might be some of the happiest people on the face of the earth, because we know that Jesus has paid it all. We pray this in his name. Amen.